0: Brothers and sisters, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage we 're going to read both of those passages this morning together. If you could turn to the second in Revelation chapter nineteen you 'll find that on page'll we'll add it one thousand and thirty nine and put your finger there and then turn to Genesis chapter 2, where we'll have our first reading from. Genesis chapter 2, we'll read verses 21 through 25. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. We'll be reading verses 6 through 9 together. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
1: All right, week two. We're going to look this morning at the subject of marriage. We're talking about practical daily life, things that we encounter on a daily basis for the glory of God, and we're taking seven topics over the next six weeks, one last week, and uh, we're going to look at marriage this week. Few would argue, I think, that the last few decades have brought about nothing less than a major paradigm shift in our culture in regards to marriage. I mean, the West Judeo-Christian heritage and foundation has largely been supplanted and replaced with a libertarian ideology, that is an ideology that elevates human freedom and self determination as the supreme principles for human relationships. And where that becomes a cultural, the cultural air we breathe, it becomes toxic to things like marriage. Because a self determining person who will make life and govern life and live life the way they please is going to attack foundational and fundamental institutions that God has made, including marriage. And it's that self-determination and that freedom that essentially kills human relationships. So there are lots of negative consequences that have come as a result of this replacement. You have skyrocketing divorce rates, sex outside of marriage, procreation outside of marriage, the redefinition of marriage altogether, gender confusion, homosexuality, and, and other things. And as we saw last week, back in the Garden of Eden, when we place ourselves at the heart of something that God creates for us to worship Him through, chaos gets introduced. Breakdown occurs. Brokenness invades. Sin reigns and leaves death in its wake. And so for us as God's church, then it becomes imperative for us at least to get this right. We have got to get the biblical vision right. Not just in our heads, but in our hearts and in our homes. We have to understand God's design and purpose for marriage. And not just the purpose, but its pattern. And why God has given marriage the pattern He has given it. So why does marriage exist? And how does God intend it to function? Well, as Jason read for us, the Bible Begins and ends with a marriage. And the most foundational thing that I'll say about marriage this morning is that it is God's doing for God's display. I want you to get that, all right? Marriage is God's doing for God's display. If we embrace, that's the biblical vision of marriage. Marriage is a doing of God, it's a work of God, it's a creation of God, which means we don't get to tinker with it and redefine it. It's God's doing. For God's display, we see that it's God's doing in Genesis chapter 2, one of the texts that Jason just read for us. From the beginning, God makes man, male and female, and causes them to cleave to each other and hold fast to each other, becoming one flesh. Jesus picks up this idea, and he agrees with it. Matthew chapter, t- Mark 10, verses 6 through 9, Jesus cites Genesis one twenty seven and Genesis two twenty four and underscores the fact that what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the clearest statement in the Bible that marriage is not merely human doing. The words, God has joined it together, means that God has done it. But marriage is also for the display of God. We'll get there when we in, in the fall when we return to our exposition of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33 is the great bedrock passage for understanding how marriage is the display of God. There we see that the man and the woman joined together in one flesh are representative of Christ and the church. In other words, the covenant involved in leaving father and mother and holding fast to a spouse and becoming one flesh is a portrayal of a covenant that exists between Christ and the church. Marriage, in that sense, is a parable, what one writer called a parable of permanence. It's a parable that's say, telling something. Marriage is, a, is meant to display something. It's meant to show something to the world. And it's m- the most fundamental thing it's meant to show and display is the covenant between Christ and His church. Marriage exists most ultimately to display the covenant keeping love between Christ and His church. I mean, that's foundational. It's so foundational that Scripture emphasizes it again and again. Now, what I want to do is I want to take us to 1 Corinthians 7 this morning. So, got a Bible? We're going to be there. So, take your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're using a Bible provided by the church, it's on page 955. We are going to be in that text this morning. And what I want to do is drill down in 1 Corinthians 7 some some foundations for understanding what a solid marriage is and what it's built on. All right, so, for, so 1 Corinthians 7 is the longest, most extended teaching on marriage in the whole Bible. It's 40 verses. It doesn't just deal with marriage. It deals with singleness and divorce and remarriage and all other things that we could get into. And I will make some application to that along the way. But my main focus is going to be on marriage this morning. What I want to do is mine out three foundations from this passage on, for a solid marriage. Here's the first one. And it's in verses 1 through 5. The first foundation on which a solid marriage is built is that marriage must be built on mutual ministry. Mutual ministry. Paul's going to take up the subject of sex as one illustration of this. But as we'll see, it applies in other ways as well. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's responding to the Corinthian church in a letter they wrote to him. Here's what the Corinthians said. If you have an ESV Bible, this is in quotes. This is quoting what the Corinthians said in their letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. See, they had this high view of super spirituality, and he's going to correct them on this. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you might devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." Now, each verse in this section, verses 1 through 5, literally breathes mutuality. That is, the wife devoting herself and giving herself to her husband, and the husband devoting himself and giving himself in a sacrificial, selfless way to his wife. I mean, just verse 2 says, Each one should have his own. Each man have his own wife, each woman her own husband. There's mutuality. Verse 3, the like the husband must give to his wife. Likewise, the wife to her husband. So there's this giving idea. Then authority, verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. So there's this authority idea. Then there's agreement, verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So there's this mutual ministry going on. This mutual giving of oneself to the spouse. And doing that as expressed, first of all, in sexuality. Now, when we marry, we willingly lay down our independence and, in, and enter into a relationship of mutual interdependence. That is what's underneath this command. Paul is assuming that they understand what marriage is, that marriage is about this mutual ministry between husband and wife. So much of the world wants to have marriage without giving up independence. So much of the world views compatibility in such a wrong way. They say if you're truly compatible, you don't have to change. If you're truly compatible, you don't have to serve anybody. Well, I'm just here to let you know that relationship now does not exist. It doesn't exist. Marriage, when it's entered into biblically, takes as its first and fundamental premise self giving. Self giving. I will lay my life down for you. I no longer have authority over my own life. I give it to you, so the husband says. The wife says the same thing. The the wife says, I will gladly give myself to you. The husband says the same thing. And one of the ways that shows up is in the sexual relationship between husband and wife. Now, let's just be really clear. We'll get to this a little later. Paul doesn't conceive of sexuality apart from marriage. All right? He doesn't conceive of that. That's because God doesn't conceive of it that way. Sexuality is such a power for cultivating oneness between two people that marriage is the only thing that will sustain it and bless it and bring fruitfulness out of it. Marriage is the great protector and the great, I would say, it's, it's the great fire, the, the great protector that protects that fire of sexuality. The purpose of marriage is to help your spouse become his or her future glory self through sacrificial service. I'm married to a woman named Katie. My responsibility as her husband is to give my life for her such that her future glory self is being formed in her through my sacrificial service to her. And that's her responsibility to me. And that's your responsibility to your spouse in here if you're married. Or it's your responsibility if you want to be married. We have to develop a ministry mindset when it comes to marriage. A consumer mindset kills marriage. What do I mean by a consumer mindset? I mean, we all know our primary love languages. Anybody ever heard of the book, Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages? Well, there's one in there that he doesn't mention. The primary love language is self-love. All right, that is the fundamental primary love language of everybody. Self-love. And so, serving does not come easy for us. I mean, I seldom wake up and think, maybe you do. If if so, we need to talk. I seldom wake up and think, you know, I'm going to find 17 sacrificial and servant-hearted things to do for Katie today because I want to give her a picture of Jesus. Right? I mean, who wakes up thinking that way? That's how countercultural serving is, even to our redeemed nature. More typically, my heart seeks to devise ways to be served, and that is because I have I love me and have a wonderful plan for my life." And you do too. And so we have to reorient ourselves to the path of blessedness in marriage, don't we? We've got to go back to what God says in Acts, "It's more blessed to give than to receive. We have to orient ourselves, say, "I want to be really happy. I want to be really happy in my marriage. Well, how am I going to do that? Give. Give. Mutual ministry. Think about this. If you, what if you thought about, what if you let the what can I give question, what if both husband and wife, every husband and wife in this church was committed to asking these kind of questions? What can I give instead of what can I get? Think about this in, in a number of different areas of life. I want to share a few of them with, them with you. What if you said when you argue, what can I give up to resolve this? When you' hurt one another, what apology can I give to heal this? When you're on vacation, what can I give to make his vacation better? When you're in bed, what can I give to enhance his or her enjoyment of physical intimacy? When you're budgeting, how can I give up what can I give up this month to give her more spending money? When you're talking, how can I give her more of a listening ear? When you're leading, how can I give her better, in my leader, leader better serve her better in my leadership? When you're submitting, how can I give him more respect when I disagree with his decisions? When you're feeling free time, how can I give him the most pleasure today? When you're offended, how can I give him the benefit of the doubt? When you're betrayed, how can I give him grace? When you have no feelings of love, how can I act in love? When you think she's not attractive, how can I love her as the Lord loved the church? When you see his ugly side, how can I help him become more beautiful? When he's depressed, how can I give him encouragement? When she's lost sleep... How can I give a rest? What if that sort of mutual ministry was taking place? What if husband and wife were committed to giving their mind, their heart, their eyes, their hands, their body, their money to each other? They gave financially, emotionally, physically, intellectually, sexually, spiritually, giving away themselves, our whole selves. If we believe the Bible rather than our instincts and our culture, you will be more blessed in that giving than in all the getting you can imagine. And the great aim of all this marital giving is that eventually each one, each person, would become what God has made them in Christ to be. I mean, that's the vision, that's the picture, that's the goal. This giving is to give so much of self away so that literally each has all the other. And the two truly become one. They truly become one flesh. Because when both are giving 100%. When both are laying their lives down. Guess what emerges out of that? Oneness. One flesh. We lose so much independence. And become so interdependent. That we become one flesh in every way. And that's God's vision. So marriage is first of all. Built on. Mutual, mutual ministry. Second idea. Marriage is built on covenant loyalty. Covenantal loyalty. Let's look at verses 10 through 16. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you'll save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? All right, so this is, this is introducing for us the unique challenges that come to marriage. Paul's not idealistic here. He's not like, oh, marriage is just great. This mutual ministry takes place, and there's no problems. No, He's realistic he understands he lives in a Genesis 3 world. It's a fall. It's a curse. All right. Post-fall, when two sinners say, I do, you're going to have friction, problems, trials, difficulties. What we do, though, with those challenges makes all the difference in whether our marriage will weather the storms and come out stronger, that more oneness will be cultivated or not. So he, he acknowledges three distinct challenges here in verses 10 through 16. The first challenge in verses 10 and 11 is he's talking about harder than average marriages. He acknowledges that there will be marriages, even in the church, which will be harder than average. All marriages are hard. All marriages have friction and difficulty and challenge, but some marriages are particularly challenging, and there are a myriad of reasons why that can be so. But Paul just wants to step in and remind them of what Jesus said, You notice when he says in verse 10, to the married I I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Now, don't be confused by that when he says in verse 10, not I but the Lord. In verse 12, I not the Lord. He's not saying Jesus has authority, I'm just giving my opinion. What he's saying in verse 12 is Jesus never gave a specific command about what I'm getting ready to tell you, but I have the Spirit of God and I'm under the inspiration of the Spirit, and this is the Word of God to you. That's all he's saying. He's not saying, I'll take this or leave it, I'm just an apostle. No, what he's saying is, I have no direct command from Jesus on this, but I do have the Holy Spirit. So here, in verse 10, he says to the married, don't separate. Don't divorce. And that's just right on the surface. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, why? Because he understands what marriage is. It's about covenant loyalty and the display of God's covenant-keeping grace in Christ for the church. And he knows that when divorce happens, and there are biblical grounds for it, and there are some that are even acknowledged in this own chapter. We can't get into all those this morning. There are sufficient and legitimate biblical grounds for divorce. okay? But what he's underscoring here is that covenant loyalty and seeking to preserve the covenant must be of highest priority to the Christian. If at all possible, seek to preserve it. Now, it's not always possible. Okay? And he acknowledges that. He says in verse 11, if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So there's the possibility of reconciliation and there's the possibility of separation. But his goal and desire is that the marriage be saved. That covenant loyalty be uh, shown. And then he gives the example of an unbeliever and a believer spouse in verses 12 through 16. And this is where he begins to talk about, well, okay, one spouse is a Christian and one person isn't. Now, likely this was created because of the coming of the gospel to Corinth. Paul came, preached the gospel, and guess what? A husband responded and a wife didn't. Or a wife responded and a husband didn't. And so you've got two people who were non-Christians in their marriage, the gospel comes to them and either a husband takes it up, believes Christ, commits to follow him as a disciple, and the wife doesn't, or vice versa. And so Paul's giving instruction here. So how do you live in the midst of that situation? Well, Jesus didn't speak directly to it, but Paul, writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit, does, does give some specific direction. And it's basically, preserve the covenant if you can. Seek to work it out. Work within the realm of peace. Seek to cultivate peace and love each other, even where there is great spiritual distance from each other. It says in verse 12 that if any brother has a wife, any brother in Christ has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, don't divorce her. So just because you've become converted, Christian husband, don't divorce your non-Christian wife. If she wants to live with you, great opportunity for the gospel. If any woman, he's doing vice versa, verse 13, has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So mutuality again, right? Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, don't think salvation with that, okay? Paul is not talking that the unbelieving husband saves, makes them holy. He's not talking about that. He's saying God is at work in that home. God is at work in that home. That's his point. God saved one. He might save another. Okay? Your children are going to be brought under the influence of the gospel. Your husband or wife is going to be brought under the influence of the gospel and witness a transformed life. That's his point. And he summarizes it in verse 16. Wife, how do you know whether you'll save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you'll save your wife? God's at work in that home. Preserve the covenant, if at all possible. That's his point. So don't lose. Don't get all you know, bogged down by what? What does it mean children are unclean and that they're holy and that the unbelieving's wife is made holy and all that? It just means God's at work. God's holy presence is there in that home, at work in that wife, at work in those kids. And if they're willing to consent to stay with you, that is already an evidence of God's work. So don't lose heart. Don't don't get discouraged. Maintain the covenant. Now, why is he harping on this so much? I mean, why is he just so strong about maintaining covenant? And well, because he understands something fundamental about the biblical view of marriage as covenant. He understands that staying, in, staying married is a lot, about a lot more than staying in love. What do I mean by that? He means it's about keeping covenant. Till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. That's the sacred covenant promise that we as Christians confess to God and to a gathering of witnesses when we vow to each other. And so the same, that's the same kind of covenant promise that Jesus made for his bride when he died for her, right? He said, till death do us part. And this risen son of God is not dying again all right? And as long as we both shall live, and this risen Son of God is living forever. So therefore, what makes divorce and remarriage so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it involves misrepresenting Christ in his covenant. Christ will never leave his wife ever, ever, ever. There may be times of painful distance and tragic backsliding on our part. But Jesus keeps his covenant with his church forever, and marriage is to be a display of that. And Paul gets that, he understands that, and that's why he's working towards the preservation of it as well. Now, in our day, the the idea of marriage as a covenant in in, in our broader culture is entirely lost. It it doesn't, we're we're not thinking in covenantal terms. I mean, it's like, two people love each other. Why do they need a covenant? You know, they love each other. Why do they need to get married? I mean, that's that's the sentiment of a large part of our culture. What matters is love, not marriage. I would take issue with that because Scripture would take issue with that. Love needs a covenant. Love needs a framework of binding obligation to make it fully what it should be. Love needs a covenant to make love stronger. Why do I say that? Let me read you a quote from Tim Keller. A covenant relationship is not just intimate despite being legal. It's a relationship that is more intimate because it is legal. Why? Why should it be so? Here's what he says. He says, we can begin by observing that making a binding public marriage vow to another person is an enormous act of love in and of itself. Isn't it? Someone who says, I love you, but we don't need to be married, may be saying, I don't love you enough to curtail my freedom for you. So they don't love you very much because they're not willing to marry you. The willingness, Keller says, to enter a binding covenant, far from stifling love, is a way of enhancing, even supercharging it. A wedding promise is proof that your love is actually at marriage level as well as a radical act of self-giving all by itself, end quote. So that's why a covenant is so critical. It not only upholds love and demonstrates love, but it strengthens love. So that's point number two, covenantal loyalty. So we've seen that mutual, a strong marriage is built on mutual ministry, the husband laying his life wife down for the wife, the wife laying her life down for a husband, giving up their independence so they might cultivate an interdependent oneness. It's based on covenantal loyalty. Come hell or high water, I'm with you. I love you till death do us part, and I will pursue you and cultivate this marriage together. The last thing that's needed is an eternal trajectory. An eternal trajectory. That is an eternal perspective, an eternal mindset to this, not just a temporal mindset. See, marriage has a way of just keeping you totally absorbed in the temporal. And that's for good reason, and it happens, because Paul even acknowledges it. Let's look at verses 28 through 35 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But if you do marry, he's talking to the unmarried right now, and he's telling them that if you do marry, you should know a few things. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned, which the Corinthians thought. They're like, well, it's more spiritual to be single. And he says, yeah, you don't have a realistic, like you of all people, the Corinthians, you should realize that sex, your sexuality is a real problem. You need to get married. Like he's like, I mean, it's, it's almost like they're writing to him. It's like, well, you said that we, you know, we should be like you and, and it, you know, we should be single and devoted to the Lord. And he's like, yeah, I understand that. It's devoted, devotion to the Lord. is I, I'm able to be more devoted to the Lord in a certain sense than married people are, but that doesn't mean that marriage is sin. That doesn't mean marriage is wrong. It's the vast will of God for most people. But he says, verse 28, if you do marry, I want you to know you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. Now, this is where he, he infuses this eternal trajectory into the idea. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, that's a very important phrase. We've got to come back to that, All right. <laughs> Let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away. Now let's come back to this whole statement about what does he mean when he says those who have a wife should live as though they don't have one. It doesn't mean, hey man, just be single again. Go out and do what you want, you know? Stay up late, eat what you want, disregard all our needs and wants, just do what you want because, hey, man, the present form is passing away. I'm just trying to be an eternal Christian here. That's not his point, okay? His point is you need to have an eternal mindset when it comes to your marriage. That is that the present form of this world is passing away. Christ is returning. The gospel is spreading. The kingdom of God is coming and has come. God is making for himself a bride ready for Christ's return. That is what marriage is about. Our marriage exists for that purpose, for that kingdom, not for ourselves. Even though we're going to have worldly troubles and we're going to have distractions that are going to come as a result, nevertheless neither marriage and Paul's idea or singleness is of really great importance in comparison to God's kingdom. That's his point. Whether you're single, if you read the whole chapter, Paul says, whether you're single or whether you're married, what the, the greatest thing is God's kingdom. That's the main thing. Neither one, neither singleness nor marriage is morally superior to the other. In verse 7, he says, each has his own gift. One has this gift, one has that gift. Namely, one has the gift of marriage, one has the gift of singleness. The the issue is not the gift. The I- issue is the greater significance of God's kingdom to all human institutions, including marriage, which is a God's institution given to humanity. But Maybe in certain situations one is to be preferred over the other, and Paul gives lots of qualifications in this chapter for when a single person might prefer to stay single versus to marry. He's very pastoral throughout the whole chapter. I wish we had more time to unpack it. We just don't this morning. And maybe in certain situations, one is to be preferred over the other, but there is no absolute better way to serve God. That's his point. The point is we serve God and we devote ourselves to the kingdom of God, whether we're married or whether we're single. That's the big issue. That's the main issue. Unless our marriages exist for something greater than our marriages, our marriages will not be what God designed. Until we get this, both marriage and singleness will be lived on a horizontal plane that will be at some level unsatisfying because our marriage was made for eternal ends. Remember, this mutual ministry, think about the first two points of the sermon, right? This mutual ministry is for an eternal end. We're preparing each other to meet Jesus who's our true spouse. So the husband says, I'm married to Christ and to you. And The wife says, I'm married to Christ and to you. Let's help each other toward him. See, we can either be, as J.C. Ryle put it, we can either be wings or handcuffs. Wings means we serve each other by carrying each other to Christ and pointing each other to Christ by the way we live with each other in a self-sacrificing way. Every act of self-sacrifice that we do as a husband or wife is preaching the gospel to our husband and wife. We're saying, I love you. Christ loves you. We're going to make it. And I'm going to help you get there by my willingness to lay down my life to make sure it happens. I'm committed to, by God's grace, laying my life down day after day, moment by moment, with repeated failure and need for ongoing forgiveness and grace, both from you and from God. This is not perfection here. We're going to fail, 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 fail. But the point is the resolve of the heart that by God's grace, I'm going to keep getting up, keep serving, keep serving, keep serving. Repent of my selfishness, and I'm going to keep serving. And I'm doing that to help you get to heaven. And then so that, that mutual ministry is foundational, and then that covenant loyalty is also foundational, isn't it? because it says, I'm with you, because he's with us, and he's committed to us, and I'm committed to you. So the goal, the goal is a life of devotion to the Lord. And for some, and Paul alludes to this, for him it would have been, marriage is a distraction. Marriage was a distraction for the Apostle Paul. He didn't need it. He was given the gift of singleness, which means he didn't have a craving for sexuality that needed to be fulfilled in marriage. That's a rare gift, but it is a gift. And there are people that I've known that possess it and sure people that you know that possess it. And there are others, and I would put myself in this category, that singleness would be a profound distraction. It would be. God has given me the gift of marriage because it is the very best thing for me in my sanctification and it is the very best thing for most people in their sanctification. Because no one can have a more refining influence on your, wife than, or on your life than your wife or your husband. Your spouse is refining your character. And so for the most part, that is God's desire for most of his people. But it's not his only desire. And he gives the gift of singleness for the purpose of serving Christ and not serving self. His vision of singleness is radically different from Western culture's vision of singleness, which is I don't want to be tethered to any responsibility. I want to do what I say I want to do. Paul would call every single one of those people to get married. He would. If you're living your singleness for your own ends, you need to get married. If you're living your singleness as an offering to Jesus Christ, laying your life down in sacrificial service to him and to his church, Paul would say remain single if you can. That's what he would say. I'm convinced. Read first Corinthians seven. But he would say if it's if it's a it goes back to our sermon on Mother's Day from First Timothy five. We saw it there. Those women who were kind of younger widows who were idle and going from house to house, he said, Command them to marry. They don't have enough responsibility. They're gonna live as a as an offense to the gospel. Don't do that. So Paul is all about having responsibility placed upon us for the care of other people. And so for some people, for most people, I would say that's marriage and family. For others, it's singleness devoted to the kingdom of God and to the church. It's, there's no independence here, all right? Singleness is a more effective way to give your life in, in a specific way, a sacrificial way, a focused way to a particular area of the kingdom of God in the church, all right? It's not so that you can be unhindered from the obligations of marriage just so you can be independent, Okay, very important to note and encourage you to look at the chapter for for more on that. All right, let me close with some application and I'll be brief here and I want to make this application to young people all right so i'm I'm gearing this application time to people who are looking at marriage down the road, which will be for the for most of you what God will call you into all right and I want to give you five things that need to be in place that you need to be cultivating in your life right now, teenager on up, to to cultivating preparedness for that, all right? And I'll be very brief with these. Number one, first of all, young people, you need a clear commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. Who will be your Lord? Who will dictate your decisions? Who will reign as supreme over your choices? Yourself or Christ? Right? Are you submitted to God's word and what it says? Or are you presently being informed and shaped by our culture in regards to its definition of marriage? Is growth in godliness part of your goal in pursuing relationships? Because that's the purpose of marriage. Don't set yourself up for failure, please. Please, I'm pleading with you. I've already seen it in my friends. We were taught the same stuff. I got reminded of this when I was in college. Please listen. You have to make growth in godliness the primary goal of pursuing relationships. Because that's God's goal for your marriage. Is the vision for your marriage a biblical vision built on mutual ministry... And is Christ the functional Lord of your relationships? That would be my first series of questions. Christ being supreme as Lord of your life. Second, a carefully considered purpose for initiating a relationship. Dating and courtship is not the issue. The why is the issue. The why of initiating a relationship. Why Because everyone else is doing it and because I have these feelings is not a legitimate why. All right. Well, everyone else is dating in high school. Well, everyone else is doing this. I do not regret the amount of time that I waited for my wife. I do regret for the few years I spoiled in high school. I do regret that. The purpose must be in pursuing and initiating a relationship, determining the possibility of a God-glorifying marriage. Now, I'm not talking about friendship. I'm not talking about have, being friends and even you know going out with groups of people and getting to know people and you know engaging them on that level. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about entering into an exclusive relationship of boyfriend, girlfriend, or some sort of exclusive thing that has no vision for determining whether or not that's heading toward marriage or not. That's all I'm saying. It's not even in the picture, and that's an unhealthy foundation. Third, there needs to be a practical sense of timing and readiness. Let me ask you these questions, young people. When will you be able to responsibly take on a marriage? Is that four years away from now? Then it's not wise to be considering entering into an exclusive relationship if that's four years away. It's not wise. Yes, get to know people. Yes, build friendships. You say, what, but what am I supposed to do with these feelings? I've got these feelings. Well, they're given by God. And one of the purposes is to help you grow up enough to get married. It's supposed to motivate you to get ready. And they're given to you to see if you can cultivate the kind of selflessness you will need when you go into marriage. So you know how you can serve your spouse now or your future spouse now? Cultivate self-control. Cultivate selflessness. It's a key ingredient to a healthy marriage. And you say, so I'm going to focus. If if the time is way off, if I've got a long way to go to get ready... I'm going to focus on cultivating godliness, finishing school, engaging in productive work, learning to handle money, saving, giving, taking care of my responsibilities, fostering an increased dependence on God and love for the local church, and a an radical independence from needing adults to support you. So that, it's both of those things, right? And so it's a practical sense of timing and readiness. And this leads me to number four. You need the church to help you with this especially your parents, okay? The absence of parental involvement in a preparatory and developmental way can do great harm here. So the oversight of godly people who have your best interest at art and desire your well-being and are not trying to control you with their counsel, but they're trying to give you wise counsel, we should open ourselves up to that. That's a sign that you're in a healthy relationship is the degree that you make yourself accountable to other people that you open yourself up to accountability, to the body of Christ, or specifically to my parents, and then maybe, maybe one or two other people. So it's I have enough people in my life, giving counsel, giving oversight, that are godly people, that have my best interests at heart, that love us, that love me, that are committed to my well-being. And then fifthly and finally, a purpose resolved to be sexually pure until that point. And man, I mean, I I wasn't a teenager that long ago, okay, and I stood out like a sore thumb then too. But you will stand out even more so now, all right? And this is an opportunity for you to demonstrate the ultra-satisfaction of Christ. Man, can you preach the gospel if you remain a sexually pure young adult. What is up with you, dude? I mean, you know, why don't, why don't you just, like, what's causing you to not give in? you got opportunities left and right. And you can present a really compelling witness. That is, if those other things are in place already. There's a reason I put that one last and not first. Because supremacy of Christ is first. Submitted to his lordship focused on the goal and purpose of initiating a relationship, which is the possibility of a God-glorifying marriage, and then a practical sense of timing and readiness, and then the oversight and accountability of parents and other godly people, and then the resolve to be sexually pure, which means as we enter into these relationships in a, in a, in a, a good-time way, like the Song of Solomon encourages us to not let love be awakened before it's time. But as we do that, then we think about where we go and how often we're alone and how much time we spend together and we open our lives up for accountability and we have a plan to protect it. That's really practical counsel, young people. I don't get to speak to you very often about about these kinds of things, but I, I hope you hear my heart in that this morning. I would save you some of the pain of my experience, but thankfully, by God's grace, also I saw the Lord bless this process in my own life. And willingness to submit to His lordship to initiate my relationship with my wife at an appropriate time, even though I could have two years lo- two years earlier because I was loving her and really interested in marrying her. But it was a good two years off when those initial flames started and i struggled and i wrestled and i talked to godly people and i asked them to hold me accountable and i and i asked for their prayer and support and encouragement and i would encourage you to do the same as a young person and then commit yourself to focus th- on what you should be focusing on growing in godliness finishing school however long that is getting a job getting independent learning how to handle money loving the church loving the lord loving his people and growing more and more in a position where marriage is a real possibility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dip into your word this morning and to consider these things. We acknowledge all of us in here that our marriages and our singleness has been marked by sin. And we thank you, God, that the display of marriage that we're seeking to display in our marriages is not spirit, is not moral performance. It's not, hey, look at how great of a husband I am. And the wife saying, look at how great of a wife I am. Aren't we great? Isn't our marriage great? No. The display of marriage is the display of two broken, dependent sinners on Jesus. Manifesting the relationship between Christ and his church and growing in self-sacrificial service. Help us to capture that vision. Help us to leave motivated this morning to be about your purposes, for your glory, empowered by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers, we're going to continue to sing.
0: Dave might not not want my microphone on. Maybe that's what's going on. All right, we're going to continue to sing as we respond in worship this morning, and we're going to, I want us to be to remind us that our debt is paid, it's paid in full, and it's paid by our Savior, the Church's spouse, Jesus Christ. Stand with me as we as we sing. <laughs>
1: Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of God's Spirit be with you this week. God bless you.